So just so you guys know right now, my fly tying table looks like I murdered a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> This is Teachers in the Wild podcast, episode three, and we are here with the man, the myth, the legend, Bane to foul, both water and land-based, fly tying extraordinaire, fly fishing guide, Jake Vilwalk. Hello, Jake. Hi, everybody. And we have Fry. Hi. <laughs> you guys know me. I'm, I was being quiet for once. Doesn't happen often. That's a first. Donovan, be nice. Always. <laughs> Yay! So, I have a defender. <laughs> Not that I needed one. I'm an independent woman. I'm an independent woman. It's okay. <laughs> Are you going to start singing Beyonce? You... No, I'm not strong enough. <laughs> All right. So. Wow. Um, today, we are going to be picking Jake's brain on all things fly fishing, getting into fly fishing, um, his life as a guide, what brought him to guiding through the wilds of Pennsylvania, and pretty much every little bit of information we can glean out of that massive brain of his. So, starting out, um, Jake, you got your start in Alaska, correct? I sure did. Yes, that is correct. Okay. Um, so tell us how you found yourself in the wilds of Alaska. Right on. Um, so, uh, first things first was, uh, you know, High Point University was the reason why I actually ended up in this career path. And, um, I did a study America program my junior summer and, um, spent my entire childhood fishing. And so the, when we went up to Alaska, it was kind of like a rebirth of who I was when I was a younger child. Um, and luckily for me, um, I actually had some family up there. And when we backpacked the inside passes through school, uh, I got to stay an extra day in Sitka, Alaska. Um, and my cousin said, uh, you know, through a small conversation was like, hey, man, if you ever want to come back to Alaska, like I could probably get you a job counting fish at a weir, you know, working for one of the, the summer like tourist groups or whatever, or some of the guys that I work with have lodges that would probably hire you as a, you know, fly fishing guide or deck hand. And I was like, well, yeah, that'd be sweet. Um, and so about three weeks before I graduated college, having no idea what I was going to do with my life, my cousin called me and said, uh, hey, uh, my one buddy Paul is looking for a deckhand and a fly fishing guide. What do you think? And I was like, I'll be there. So committed to moving to Alaska before I graduated college and told my parents. And so uh, that was a fun conversation to have. Oh, mom and dad, I'm coming home for three days and then I'm flying to Alaska. Bye. So. And then when you got to Alaska, what was that like? Uh, Alaska is the greatest place on this planet. Um and uh, so Alaska was fantastic. Um, you know, when I first started guiding, my old boss uh, is a school teacher as well. He's a high school teacher. Um, he teaches, um, I believe, Alaskan history and Russian history and maybe uh, one or two other ones or a combination of all of those. Um, he had been guiding for 25 years when I started, and he was so contagious when it came to his energy level for guiding and his pride for being a guide. 
um, that, you know, when I got there, it was like I was in it from day one. Um, all I wanted to do for the rest of my life was be a fishing guide. Um, and uh, he he was so passionate about it. He just everything that he did revolved around being a guide and waiting for the summer to start so he could guide. Um, so one of the coolest stories that I have uh, in my mind, or at least the beginning story was when uh, I moved up there, he was on a steelhead trip with a couple buddies out in the wilderness. And I got there and he sent me an email and said, Hey, here's where my boat is. Go find the boat yard. Uh, here's a list of things to do. So me being a college graduate, I'm laying on the my back on the ground scraping barnacles off the bottom of his boat and i'm sitting there swearing to myself silently because i'm like what did i just get myself into and then i stood up and i looked over and there's a four thousand foot mountain with snow on the top of it and i was like oh i'm scrubbing barnacles off the bottom of a boat in alaska this is awesome um so you know people ask me all the time today like oh how, you know how'd you get here like what'd you do and i literally tell them i started from the ground up so when i started my career i was laying on the bottom of a boat and uh staring at mountains and watching bears walk by and and uh it was fantastic wow how big was this boat that you're working on was it like one of those little dinghies or was it substantial like uh some days it felt like a dinghy. um but it was a 27 foot cabin cruiser, um, you know, and everybody's like, oh, you went to Alaska, the deadliest catch. And uh, so I was in seas that felt like the deadliest catch in that boat. Um, we would have these like 10 to 12 foot rollers come in from uh, the other side of the Pacific Ocean. And when you would have 10 to 12 foot rollers come across uh, and then you had two or three to five feet of, of wind chop, now you've got you know, between 14 and 17 foot, uh, you know, waves. Um, and so you'd be on the ocean in this little boat or it looked big for, for a while until these waves came through and you'd be trolling for salmon along uh, a parallel line with another boat and you'd end up in the trough of two waves and the boat that was right next to you is gone. And so, um, you know, it was definitely a smaller boat, but, um, or I should say it was definitely a big enough boat, but there were days when the weather was so bad that it felt like a dinghy for sure. So, man, I, now I feel extremely basic and uneducated about Alaska. Cause I was definitely going to say the deadliest catch. Thanks for, uh, taking down my spirits. Uh, <laughs> but that sounds wild. Um, I can't imagine seeing waves that the size of mountains, um, I mean, nowhere near to the Alaska mountains, like 4,000 feet. That's a great climb um, and a treacherous treacherous one, I imagine. Yeah. Um, the cool part about Sitka is Sitka is at sea level. Um, and uh, so 4,000 feet is 4,000 feet from zero to 4,000. You know, not that I'm going to dog Colorado or any of those places. But, you know, when you talk about – Oh, I hit a 9,000 today or something like that. We well, started at 6,000, so I only climbed 3,000 feet. But, um, you know, so you they're, – they're from sea level up, which is which is wild. Um, the biggest mountain on uh, Baranoff Island, which is the island that Sitka's on, um, is uh, 5,200. And that's literally its name. They don't have names for them. It's just they name them by the height. Uh I have not climbed that one yet, but I've climbed multiple 4,000s uh, in Sitka, and it was pretty spectacular. So not that that has anything to do with fly fishing. <laughs> but. No, but I, it, 
I I like mountains. I know Donovan doesn't like rocks and stuff, climbing them, but uh, that, that's good. where my my bread and butter is. I'm old. I'm nice. old and fragile. I can't go climbing rocks. Yeah, we know. Yeah, yeah. It's um, okay. You can make fun of me. My I popped my hip um, when I went climbing yesterday. <laughs> Wow. You're the youngest one out of all of uh, us. I, I was a professional ballerina for a while, so my bones are that of like a 65-year-old woman with uh, osteoporosis. I hear excuses, <laughs> and I don't like them. I'm still climbing, but anyway, back to fly fishing. All right, so you get to Alaska. You find yourself pretty much in like the deadliest catch, the, the pansy version. Uh, (laughs) i feel like he's a little more badass that's uh those are he's a little more badass well you're lucky you're in north carolina (laughs) (laughs) that i i would pay to see that uh yeah not me a short show (laughs) um so aside from ginormous waves and you know death at sea what i mean alaska's wild territory i mean what is it like stepping out of you know the college we went to, which was pretty much like. I was going to say the most pretentious university in North Carolina. Can we just go? Country I was club? just going to say the Ivy League for the kids that are too stupid to get into the Ivy League. Um, so what's it like going from that environment to, you know, Alaska? Uh, one of the coolest feelings about Alaska is as soon as you step off the airplane, you are no longer at the head of the food chain. Um so it's a pretty eerie feeling, um, you know, when you when you step out of a country club, you know, kind of atmosphere and and you're, um, you know, used to having your meals prepared for you in the cafe and, you know, ne- you know dealing with just yourself and what do you got to do on Friday and Saturday night to, you know, having to, you know, put six people's lives in your hands and, and basically grow up really quick um, and, and make sure that you kind of have yourself. Uh, figured out, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of people uh, in the fly fishing world that go to these guide schools and, um, you know, out in Montana and they teach them how to row boats and make lunches and deal with clients and this and that. And that's a great experience for sure. Um, but it's basically a super expensive vacation to Montana. Uh, my guide school was me stepping off the airplane, my old boss, Paul, handing me a 44 revolver and saying, have fun. Uh, so, you know, not only do you have to deal with clients, but then you have to deal with the animals that are around. So um, grizzly bears, or at least in southeast Alaska, they're technically called coastal brown bears. Uh, genetically, they are exactly the same as a grizzly bear. They just grow significantly larger because their diet is uh, has way more protein in it, obviously with the salmon runs and things like that. Grizzly bears spend more time foraging on berries and nuts and, you know, um, sometimes big game, but oftentimes they're scavenging big game. So, you know, when you have these bears that are a thousand pounds walking around you and, you know, you've got six clients that, you know, you and your one buddy that were at the bar last night drinking, you know, that are quote unquote guides have to make sure that they don't get eaten by those bears. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty, um, pretty awesome feeling, but also a very humbling feeling to realize that you're, you know, you're in charge of all of that. And, uh, Definitely makes you grow up really fast, uh, and make sure that you, you know, you know, have everything uh, in your 
and your arsenal ready to go. So if something does happen, you know, I twice when I was there, I had to pull my gun on bears. I never had to discharge, which was nice, but um, I did have situations where bears were so close that you had to pull your gun just in case they decided to do something stupid. So um, it's, I, I guess that's the long-winded answer for you have to grow up and hold a gun. You know? <laughs> I, I like how you um, said, uh, well, quote, unquote, guides. Yeah. I, I was like, um, if I was out in the woods with you, I'd shoot my pants if I had known that you were <laughs> at the bar last night and now try to keep me from these bears. I just wonder how many of your clients soiled their pants because of that. Uh, none that I know of, you know, and, and the crazy part about it is that like, um, you know, you, it's just one of those things, you know, as a guide in Alaska and as a, a, you know, not just a fly fishing guide, but as a saltwater guide and, you know, there was kayak guides and, and all that stuff. I mean, it was, you know, part of the lifestyle that you lived was, you know, you worked 12 to 16 hours a day, um, you know, and then you, you know, went to the, the bar or the rest, you know, the bar or one of the restaurants and got dinner at, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, it was just part of your day. You were up at four o'clock every day and you were off the boat at, you know, six o'clock or seven o'clock. And then you had to, you know, get yourself back through the house, clean up, go get dinner or make dinner. You know, one of the cool parts about living in Alaska too, is that you could, it's an all you can eat seafood buffet with salmon and halibut. So, um, you know, if you weren't going out and getting super expensive meals or, you know, hanging out with your buddies, you could, you know, kind of make your own deal. But, um, it was just part of the deal. You know, today, if I was stayed up until midnight, one o'clock in the morning and woke up at five o'clock, I'd probably crash my car before <laughs> I got out of my driveway. But, you know, when you did it every day, it was just part of it was just part of your part of your deal. Now it wasn't always like that. Obviously, you had to be very responsible, but um, but that was just it was just the guide life. You know, that's that's part of that guide life that you see a lot of times. That bumming at life, you know, going to the bar with your clients after dinner. That's always the nice part when you're a guide. You're not making a lot of money, and then your clients are like, "Hey, you want to go to the bar? I'll buy you <laughs> dinner." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's a great." That is a uh, a hell of a perk. Yeah, it works out great. But luckily, I did it up there for two years. Uh, so not only did I guide uh, fly fishing, but I also guided dog mushing tours in Fairbanks uh, for a winter and then a winter in Western Maryland. But luckily, uh, you know, I never, knock on wood, have lost anybody, hurt anybody, or had anybody hurt themselves on my watch. So uh, I'm going to try to let that go for another 20 or 30 years before that I happens. I got eaten by a bear. Go for yeah, no, that definitely didn't happen. That's good. So how does that compare to where you're at now? You're in Pennsylvania um, to go from Alaska and come to back to the East Coast. Uh, how is that different? Uh, big difference is there's no grizzly bears or, or coastal brown bears. Um, so things around here won't eat you. Um, but, uh, you know, it's there's a significant difference for sure. Um, you know, when you're when you're in Alaska, there's there's beautiful scenery in Pennsylvania. There's also beautiful scenery. But. Um, you know, you don't have the cascading mountains behind you and the, that type of stuff. There's definitely more fishing pressure in Pennsylvania. Um, but, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, the guiding side of it is exactly the same. Um, you know, I like to, to explain to some of the newer guides that I have working for me, like, look, you know, you can't, you can't sell the fish, right? The second you sell the fish as the product you've already lost, you're selling an experience to somebody that wouldn't otherwise have it unless you were taking them fishing. And so, you know, the experience level is the same and the, and the, you know, the customer service is the same and all of that stuff. But, 
Um, you know, the big difference is just the scenery and the fishing pressure, you know, because, you know, the East Coast, not just Pennsylvania, but the East Coast in general has so many roads and there's so much water. Um, they, there's a lot more fishing pressure because it's more accessible. So uh, where in Alaska, I could go two weeks without seeing anybody on one of the freshwater streams when I was fly fishing. Uh, if I go a day without seeing, buddy, seeing somebody in Pennsylvania, uh, it's a good thing. But, um, you know, the cool part about Pennsylvania, um, you know, that, that Alaska doesn't have is we have diversity of fish. Um, you know, we have diversity of season. You know, Pens or Pennsylvania has a 12-month season. Alaska has a five-month season, you know. So um, being a full-time fishing guide uh, in Alaska just isn't feasible. Um, and a lot of people ask me all the time, well, why did you move back to Pennsylvania or why did you move to Pennsylvania uh, from Alaska? And, you know, I have a, there's a sad story that revolves around that, but also because I wanted a job that was 12 months a year. Um, so we have trout fishing, we have smallmouth bass fishing, we have pike fishing. Um, Donovan, as you saw the other day, we have cat fishing, you know, so we have a diversity of of, of fisheries, which is phenomenal. So if you want a huge river where you have to be in a drift boat, um, you know, or a raft and float down it to access it, we have that. Uh, if you want a super intimate, small brook trout stream where you're taking a five foot rod and crawling through the, you know, the mountain laurel to get to it, we have that. Uh, if you want a gin clear spring Creek where, you know, it's kind of like New Zealand almost in Pennsylvania, um, where you're kind of hunting for big fish, you're sight fishing, you're watching those fish, that type of stuff. Um, you know, we have that. If you want your traditional, you know, limestone, limestone creeks that flow out of the, out of the mountains and, um, you've got way more rocks and riffles and things like that. Um, we've got that. So, uh, and then we also have tailwaters, which are creeks that come out of, out of dams where, you know, lakes kind of feed them and things like that. So, uh, we have a diversity of water that Alaska doesn't have. Um, and we also have the diversity of fish. Uh, a lot of people ask me, you know, why, you know, why do I choose, why did I choose Pennsylvania? Why am I still in Pennsylvania? Um, and I have to give a lot of credit to the smallmouth bass, which is probably one of my favorite species to, to chase. Um, but in Pennsylvania, all of those fish are in these big, big rivers where you have to have a boat to get to. And, you know, I've seen black bears swim across the river in front of me, bald eagles swoop down and pick up a, a fish or, you know, just dive bomb us because we're close to their nest or something. So I like to tell people that Alaska, or, um, not Alaska, Pennsylvania and smallmouth bass, that's like the last wild thing that we have. And so it's like when you put your boat in that river, it's like the wild, wild west in a lot of ways. Um, and that's a cool adventure that you can still live on the East Coast. And for me, that's that's what it's all about. That's the big difference is there's stuff here that hasn't been discovered yet. And that's awesome. Um, so with that in mind, um, what is the um... – a lot of streams and rivers now are kind of under threat. What is the situation like for that in Pennsylvania? I mean, are the, are the streams and rivers pretty clean or are they kind of under threat from pollutants or, you know, how does that go? Uh, yeah. So um, Pennsylvania actually went through one of the largest or biggest devastating, you know, um, river pollutants uh, in the history of the East coast, really the Susquehanna river, uh, which is um, a major, you know, tributary to the Chesapeake Bay that runs straight through uh, the eastern side of the state. It's like 440 miles long, I think, uh, in Pennsylvania. And um, it, 
had a huge fish kill, um, you know, in 2005, and it almost decimated the population. Um, and again, it's a warm water fishery rather than a, a trout fishery. And, and one of the saddest parts about it is that if it was a trout fishery, we would have had national funding and fe national, federal, state funding uh, within 48 hours, uh, and we still can't get it impaired. And so uh, we basically um, shut the fishery down, uh, made it catch and release, closed it during the time of the year when they spawned to kind of help them out a little bit, tightened regulations a little bit on, you know, runoff and things like that, uh, or not runoff, um, waste treatment plants and farming and stuff like that. And uh, basically left these fish alone and they, they came back. And so our fishery is still not what it was 15 years ago uh, in the sense of health, but, um, you know, we've done a little bit uh, to help them. And that's one of the reasons why my company is Relentless Fly Fishing and it's got a smallmouth bass because, you know, when you look at a species of fish, you know, we pretty much destroyed them and then we left them alone. And so Relentless is a perfect, you know, word to describe you know, some of those fish in this area. Um, we also do have a lot of issue with farm runoff in our spring creeks, especially. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, we've got a lot of decimation in that world. I mean, nothing is as good as it was back in the day or, it, you know, the quote unquote, like, oh, it's not as good as it was 10 years ago, or you should have been here, you know, five years ago, the fishing was killer. Like there was all these big fish. Um, but the Trout Unlimited chapters, you know, a lot of, um, you know, private, you know, private people that, you know, have land on the creeks and stuff like that, you know, they're doing a lot of stream restoration, a lot of bank restoration because erosion from um, from runoff is probably one of the biggest, uh, you know, issues that we have uh, with stream restoration and things like that. But, you know, honestly, for the most part, a lot of our fisheries are super helpful, help, healthy, Um the Susquehanna, uh, as a warm water fishery, is probably the one that's been hit the hardest and is the most noted in this state. Is stream conservation and, I guess, maintenance, how, how much of that plays into being a guide? Oh, a lot. Um, you know, it's it's a lot like, uh, you know, you you have to basically be a steward for, you know, the the resource that you have. You know, if, if you're a cow farmer, you're not going to go out and kill all the cows and pretend that <laughs> they died somehow. I don't know. That's a terrible example. But um, but you, you basically, you have to be a steward for your rivers because this is how I make a living, right? So, like, you have to constantly be conservation-minded. Um, one thing that, you know, we're really starting to mold into the fly fishing world is um, – you know, a small organization called Leave No Trace, um, you know, and they, they educate people on how to, um, you know, preserve the environment, how to not cause undue harm to the, the stuff that or to the environment or the, the areas that you're using as your know, recreation. And so for us, like just picking up trash, you know, not dropping your cut tippet into the water, you know, tippet takes or like monofilament and fluorocarbon takes like hundreds of years to biodegrade you know so um it it's really it's really our job as guides to be on the front line of that uh and make sure we're not dropping a tippet and leaving lead split shot in the ground and you know leaving our water bottles and things like that and you know when it comes to trout unlimited chapters who do uh different types of uh you know fundraising events and things like that you know even if it's just a donated guided trip you know, that 
for me, donating you know five do- five trips a year to different team chapters or conservation organizations is one of my ways of paying back because you know they sell those at live or silent auctions and make X number of dollars from each one, um, and that money is money that I basically gave them or you know that I donated to them and they they get to use that so. Um, it's, there's a lot of different levels that you, that you have to go on it from just picking up trash to being the guy that's sitting there, you know, donating his trips and his time to different people so that other people can make, you know, you know, a contribution or, you know, some money off of that. Um, and then there's the guy with the rake, right? So like we have some, in our spring creeks, we have, uh, a few invasive plants, uh, one of which is called hydrilla. Um, and it, it's easily removed with an old fashioned rake. And so, you know, sometimes me and the guides will go out uh, and we'll rake for an hour and just rip this stuff out because what it does is it sucks in the, the oxygen of the creek during the day when the trout need it and then release it at nighttime uh, when they don't need it. And so it, it su- almost suffocates the system. And so, um, you know, people like it because it, adds a lot of habitat and stuff like that uh but it's really bad for it so we'll go out you know kind of covert op type of deal you know hoods up masks on uh breaks that we uh paint black and go out there no i'm just kidding we won't do that we'll do it in the middle of the day but um you know so stuff like that so yeah i mean being a guide you have to be a steward for the systems and the the resources they can use because if you if you do not um you know, if you don't help them, if you don't protect them, they won't be here in 10 years. And what am I going to be doing working at Walmart? I hope not. There's a special spot in hell for people that leave like spools or cut lengths of line on the bank. And then I'm walking along in my flip flops and get all tangled up in it. Those guys are assholes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Monofilament. The other day I was, I was guiding and, uh, there was a, a tree swallow dead in a tree. Um, well, it wasn't actually in the tree. It was in a ball of monofilament. And it made me so mad um, that I literally waded across, ruined the hole for my client, and cut all the monofilament out of the tree and the bird because I couldn't couldn't stand staring at it. So um, uh, sometimes I get I get a little too excited and too motivated to, like, make sure that, that happens. Like that is but. what we all should be like um, because you're right. Leave no trace. Um, that whole embodiment in that company – or that organization, excuse me, um, it is something that we should all practice. And it shouldn't take one person getting mad. On, that's like, it shouldn't take just one guy. Everybody should get mad when they see kind of that just desecration. Um, yeah, I'm going to say it's a religious place, um, nature, because that's Im- it's important. I went on a two-mile hike yesterday and picked up five water bottles and various different plastics and they were just on the trail so there's so much more that is um, being washed into our streams and just laying around and it's really sad because it's just people being careless and mindless yeah yeah i uh this time of year is really hard for me because we have a lot of people that float down the rivers and even the creeks and these inflatable tubes and they're throwing beach balls and stuff like that. And the other day I found three beach balls, you know, deflated on the side of the river. Um, you know, and so what do I do? I've got, I'm, I'm in the middle of a guide trip and I'm holding three deflated beach balls. And my client's like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I can't leave these here because they look terrible. And 
He's like, that's awesome. And I was like, yeah, but it's a pain because we're like a half a mile from the car. And so I either have to put him in my net. And so when I hook a fish for you, I got to take him out or I just got to hold him. So I just held him. But, you know, it's stuff like that where it's like, you know, plastic is one of the worst things for the environment that exists. And so, you know, plastic and all that junk. The other day I found a full inner tube. So I pulled that out of the water. Um, yeah, I never really understood why they made inner tubes that looked like tires because tires don't float. So what's you got the me. point? Yeah, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the 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 deafening silence said right, all. See, see? Um, yeah, I got nothing. You should, uh, you should right. enter in uh, crickets there. I I may have to. Um, so before we get into like the actual fishing fishing talk, what would you say is probably the biggest threat to at least the streams the biggest that you see? Threat? Whether it be environmental um, or man-made or however you want to put it. Me. I'm the biggest threat. Ooh. <laughs> that sounds both like uh, I I'm the threat, like very macho man. No. If I do say so. <laughs> that was the fisherman's ego piece. Yeah, through, right. Is what no, that was. I'm just, kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think that one of the biggest threats is is actually development of land um, around them. You know, it, it's easy to have, you know, when it rains, um, it's easy to have, you know, that rain get uh, seep. Um, oh, God. What's the word? Saturated? Thank you. Saturated into the ground. Um, you know, and that type of stuff. But the more, the more pavement that you put down, you know, the more driveways you put in, um, you know, that's where all that runoff ends up into our creeks. And, and, you know, when you take soil, trees, plants, you know, rocks, all these things that can, you know, consume all of that water that's coming down. And then you make this flat surface that runs straight into a storm drain and then runs into our systems. I think that that's one of the hardest parts. And then, you know, when you start doing development and stuff like that, then you get stream banks, you get all these, these, you know, these people that um, want to, you know, cut the grass right to the stream bed and, and make it pretty so they can see it from their deck. Well, what they don't realize is those five bushes and those two trees they just cut out are the stream banks, you know, structure. It's their backbone. It's their spine. Um, and, you know, high water will rip grass right up. So you take a creek or a river, you know, let's, let's just use a creek for an example. You take a creek that's 15 feet wide um, with this great bank that they have, you know, so aeration, um, there's plenty of oxygen, there's plenty of cool water. Um, and then all of a sudden you take all of that structure out and you bring all this water in and it slowly rips apart that bank. And next thing you know, you have a 15 foot creek that's 30 feet, 30 feet wide. Um, and it's four inches deep and all it does is warm up that water, slows that water down, sucks the oxygen out of it. Um, and so development is probably one of the biggest things, you know, that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, overfishing is definitely something that, that is an issue in some situations. Um, but for the most part, I wouldn't say, but, um, say that's a big deal. Um, you know, I've got a lot of family that are farmers. So if any of you ever hear this, I'm sorry, but. Uh, farming is also another issue. You know, when you, we've had multiple spring creeks that the populations have totally been decimated from farm runoff. You know, we had a farmer about four years ago that went out in the middle of winter time over the snow and spread cow manure on it. And when it melted, 
the amount of phosphates that and, and other, you know, runoff from cow manure that went into the spring creek literally destroyed everything in the creek from the grasses to the fish. So um, farm runoff is a huge thing, but I think, you know, the biggest thing is development. Um, you know, when you start encroaching on those wetlands, you start encroaching on those stream banks, you add a situation where water can flow into a river way faster. Um, you know, then you get that erosion and stuff like that. So, you know, as you can think about it as, as much as you want from, from other situations, other small, you know, problems that could create a big one, but honestly, you know, pavement and, and development are probably the biggest two that you're going to have an issue with those are the kind of things that just change like the whole ecology of a water system absolutely yeah it'll kill the bug life and then you know when you've got no bug life then you got no food for the fish and then the fish die uh and then you end up with these sterile streams that that have nothing in them you know maybe some creek chubs every once in a while but uh or mosquitoes and god knows everybody in this world hates Uh, mosquitoes i hate those suckers yeah literally (laughs) <laughs> ah, suckers i see what you did there you're so clever thanks i try <laughs> no um it just goes to show why i hate people <laughs> <laughs> wow i've fried people listen to this so you're gonna have to be so nice right well well to be fair it's only her mom well that's true you said it was only six people so i i do think that it's in uh it is important to say that people affect these things and because of people that those are the greatest threats because land development and pavement stem from one common source hey look homo sapiens you can't oh, hate I yourself can. you know. <laughs> oh i can and i do <laughs> I'm, good talk i'm, I'm full of self-loathing um so let's let's move on to the actual fishing part of what it is you do so one of the things about fly fishing that i think separates it from a lot of other outdoor activities is there's a sort of i don't want to say elitism to it but there's sort of an elitism to it um it it, almost to the point where it has like its own language i mean there's like so many technical terms with it you know spay casting roll cast um hatch you know and so on and so on and so on and so forth and you get the the, (laughs) exactly um and then you know yes (laughs) And anytime you uh you, you think of fly fishing you think of the old guy in the tweed jacket um standing on some like lonesome river like river runs through it how i guess true is that stereotype uh that stereotype is no more in my mind um you know there there are those guys those doctors and those lawyers and those guys that have way more money they know what to do with um that do still fish uh, you know but I worked in a fly shop for, I mean, I still work in a fly shop. It's been almost, almost 10 years now. Um, and I've seen every aspect of that, you know, from the young kids coming in to the guys that, you know, you're not 75 years old. They don't think you know what you're talking about, but who just opened a beer? (laughs) Wasn't That was a a Pepsi. No, that's going to stay in. That has to stay in. (laughs) Absolutely. Anyway. Um, so, um, you know, so that, that stereotype that, that is there still does exist, but most of those guys, you know, are, are in the older generation, you know, the, the old guard, you know, that's kind of what I call them, um, you know, and, and there is that stigma, but most of those guys are members of, 
you know, these super expensive fishing clubs and stuff like that. But, you know, one of the coolest things that I that I see on a daily basis is um, the younger generation getting into the sport. Um, my buddy Brendan just showed up. Uh, he was floating down the river today. He's 24, I think, maybe 25. Yep. I don't know. But he's – he's your age. Um uh, you know, and so he's, he just started, he just finished his apprenticeship with me and he's a guide now. And so, you know, you've got a 24 year old guide. So, um, you, this kid that, you know, just bought a raft and is like hardcore about everything. And, and so he's kind of the new poster child for the sport, that 25 to 45 year old person. You know, when I look at my client base, you know, I don't have a lot of super old guys anymore. Um, it's amazing how many young people are getting into it. There's a group of fly fishing guys um, that call themselves the Trout Bums. Um, and one of the things that's super cool about those guys is like, you know, when you look at action sports like snowboarding and wakeboarding and paintball, um, you know, and skiing and things like that, skateboarding, you know, when you watched a movie, you know, as a kid, if you were into that type of stuff, it was all about like the day in the life, like, how did you get to the skate park? And then you skated. And then, you know, what did you do after the skate park? And it was fun. It was like you were hanging out with your buddies filming the entire day. It was the first time that a fly fishing film became a skate skate film where these guys just saved up some money. I mean, they were our age. They were in their 20s and 30s, saved up a bunch of money and flew to New Zealand and bought a van. And they recorded the entire trip from them like – you know, crashing the van into a river to them catching these giant trout. And it was like, and then when they, at the end of the day, they celebrated, you know, on film with a couple beers. And so all of a sudden it took that river runs through it person and made them obsolete. And so the amount of young people that we have in the sport now is actually crazy. Um, and I know that, that Fry, we were, uh, conversing mm -hmm. at one point about, you know, women in the sport. I have one of the coolest, you know, this past week, one of the coolest things happened. I had three guide trips in a row where one of the the clients were female. Um, and my second day, oh, I had awesome. a 12-year-old girl. Um, and so her dad wanted to go fishing. And she was a champ. Like, when he said he wanted a full day, I was like, are you sure? Because, like, nine hours on the water is, let alone with me, is long. But, like, you know, nine hours in general is pretty good. Um, he's like, oh, no, she'll be good. And she stayed in it the entire time, and she loved it. She didn't catch a single trout. She caught a couple creek chubs and some sunfish, and she was pumped. And so that's the stigma that we're getting to now, uh, Donovan, is that younger generation is moving in. The amount of kids that come into the shop now that are you know, in their teens and 20s is crazy. So that there will always be that stigma of, um, you know, I'm – I'm better than you because I've fished in 17 different countries or, you know, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. Or because I pay a hundred thousand dollars to join this trout club where, uh, you know, every trout in there is 25 inches and bigger. And so I go there once a year and I catch this big fish and I put it on the desk in my office and I live my life. Through that. There's always going to be that guy, but the new generation, the majority of the fly fishermen today are the guys that are, still living at their parents' house or living in these little cottages on the creek or, you know, travel from Montana in the summertime to Alaska or, you know, it's it's a stigma of 
you no longer have to spend a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars to start fly fishing. You can spend three hundred. Um, Orvis has done a great job at making a quality product that's affordable for anybody. I mean, I know so many people they come in the shop and like, hey, like I've heard about all this fly fishing stuff. It's you know nine hundred dollar fly rod, five hundred dollar fly rod. I'm like, yeah, but. If you're just starting, why don't you start with this $300 setup because it's probably going to feel great. And so the price point has now gone from super expensive bamboo rods to, you know, here's a $300 setup or a $200 setup or here's 400 If you got 450 bucks, you can be outfitted with everything you need to fly fish, boots, waders, rod, reel, hip packs, flies, you know, all of that stuff that you need. Um, and now it's not that expensive and so you can do it for as cheap as you want or as expensive as you want and that option is what totally gets rid of that stigma of you know tweed jackets wooden creels bamboo rods um and those <laughs> I, stupid little hats the, that they used the to hat wear. of the guy in the um what's it state farm commercial i gotcha dollar guy um i yeah i think it's interesting that um looking at the outdoors and in the last 10 years a lot of sports like fly fishing are being given back to people like the average joe the kid out of college and it's becoming way more accessible to enjoy the outdoors in a a safe and like professional way um it's no longer about those country clubs because i know with climbing um it's extremely expensive to get into um, for some people, but, um, it, or it used to be, and now you can just get all of this, um, basic gear for nothing. Now, my question is, uh, about this gear, cause I am totally alienated to any of this stuff. Um, you said a rod. I know what that is. And I know what bamboo is. I know those words. Um, <laughs> I know words. Um, I, I kind of know what they mean together, but it, if I was to go and grab um, like that starter rod and some flies, what would the first couple flies that I need? Because I'm really interested to go out there um, and make a fool of myself and follow my, my arse in the water. But I at least want to know what I'm throwing out there. <laughs> Was there a question in there? God bless America. <laughs> what are the basic uh, flies that I would need? Or like, what would you suggest is like the basic flies that someone should get if they're going out for the first time? Right. So um, one of the most important things about getting into fly fishing is realizing that you can be as involved in the sport and as in, as you know, you can dedicate your whole life to it, if you will, as like a, I'm using that as an extreme example, or you can frolic through the clovers, right? So like, there's two totally different levels that you can get into. Um, and so when you walk into a fly shop, and you're like, hey, you know, I just got into it, you know, what do I need? You know, I'm, the guy standing behind the fly shop, or in our case, we actually have two females that work in our fly shop, which are awesome. Um, you know, They'll walk up to you and be like, hey, you're going to need a pheasant tail, a zebra midge. You're going to need a hare's ear, you know, maybe CDC caddis, this and that. And, like, the first thing you're going to do is kind of look at them like they got six eyeballs, right? Um, the biggest thing uh, that you want to do, and Donovan, you and I talked about this, and eventually I'll finally do it um, for the blog, is is explain that stuff. Um, 
But the biggest thing is is knowing the system that you're going to go fish and the water that you're going to fish in general because there is so many different terminologies and names for things. But there are basic flies um, that exist uh, that will imitate uh, a lot of different things. And so I just mentioned a couple of those. So a pheasant tail uh, is a fly that is literally tied out of a pheasant's tail. Um, and so the tail of it, the body... So the abdomen, the thorax, the shell back, all of that is made out of uh, pheasant tail. Uh, and what that looks like is a little mayfly nymph. And what a mayfly is, is if you've ever gone to a creek and you see these things floating down the river that look like little sailboats, those are technically mayflies. Um, and they spend anywhere from six months uh, to five years underneath of uh, the water, and that's what their 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 nymph stage is. So on a mayfly, you've got a nymph stage and a merger, which is the bug that is emerging from the creek to evolve or to not evolve to grow into uh, the adult, and then you have the adult, which is the mayfly. So you've got the mayfly nymph, the mayfly merger, and the mayfly adult. Those are the three major. Um, you know, stages of the life cycle. And so when you talk about a pheasant tail or you talk about what they call a hare's ear, now a hare's ear, again, is very simple. It's literally tied out of uh, a rabbit or a hare. Um, and so the dubbing is a hare's ear or is a rabbit fur. The tail is the guard fur on their face. Um, and so it's this little bug that's wound on a tiny hook that looks just like 90% of the bugs that are underneath the surface. So, um, you know, Knowing your super basics or walking up to somebody and saying, hey, you know, what mayflies are hatching? Um, the other the other big thing is there's a caddis fly. Um, so a caddis fly looks a lot like a house moth. That's probably the best way to describe it. So if you ever get on a creek and there's a bunch of house moths flying around, they're actually called caddis flies. Um, and so those have three different levels. They have a larva stage, which looks a lot like a worm. Uh, and then they have their pupa stage, uh, which is the technically the emerger stage stage that gra that gets a little tiny air bubble shoots to the surface uh, and then pops out into this little house moth looking thing and that's the adult so that's you know the mayfly and the caddisfly uh, are two of the main ones and then the third one would be the midge um, so I said zebra midge earlier um, the reason why a zebra midge is called a zebra midge is because it's literally black and white so um, a midge looks a lot like uh, a mosquito, except smaller, but it doesn't have the little sucker oh, thing. Uh, so, uh, Fry, you would be okay with them. Um, so, the midge has got three different stages as well. It's got a larva, a pupa, and an adult stage. Um, and I'm hoping that this isn't too in-depth to really answer that question. But um, Or at least if it is too in-depth, now you have all of those terminologies on this podcast. So, you'll be good to go. Um, that that was like a mini lesson in entomology. I kind of dig it. Yeah, that's pretty much what you have to do. But, um, you know, the biggest thing is going out there, you know, and the other cool thing about fly shops is most people that work at a fly shop work there because they love it, right? So if you walk in and you're like, hey, I'm going fishing and I, I don't really know what I'm doing. Can you help me out? And they're like, yeah, well, let me grab you some flies. You know, let me know how many of each of these you want. And, you know, you put them in the thing. And, and so many times have we as, as shop employees had to, like, label them for people, uh, which is totally cool because, like, again, I can say, hey, you're going to need this pheasant tail. You need this, you know, mercury midge. You need this military may. You need this Frenchie. And people are like, a what? You know, and so 
when you explain to them what it is, then all of a sudden it's like this. Now you have the visual recognition of what it is with the name next to it. So, um, you know, when you walk into a fly shop and you're ready to go walk down the creek and fall on your ass and have a good time, um, you know, just knowing what you're looking for, every single creek that is known for fly fishing, I would say, maybe not every single, but 90% of them, uh, if not more, have a stream report somewhere. So you can go on to like our website uh, as a fly shop and look at the stream reports and see what bugs are hatching, you know, or you can buy books nowadays that have, you know, different hatch charts to tell you what time of year these bugs are going to hatch with a picture of that bug. So now all of a sudden, you know, you can look at a caddis and be like, oh, that's what the caddis looks like. Or, you know, oh, it's it's the middle of April, which means that the caddis flies are going to start coming off. So there's so much out there in the world of, you know, uh, of resources um, that you can that you can do that. So um, it's really hard to be able to say, hey, here's the basics of what you need without going into the entomology lesson and some of that stuff to an extent. But um just knowing that uh, one of the other things that's super important to know, or I should say just knowing that like most creeks have a base level of bugs. So every single creek in the world has a midge. Every single creek in the world has a caddisfly. Every single creek in the world has at least some form of mayfly. So if you know what those three you know, species look like, you can pick flies up and fish anywhere in the world that imitate those three. So knowing that very, very important little piece of advice or information uh, can can make it so much easier for you to go. I hope that makes sense. Those flies that you listed, do they – you know, when people think fly fishing, they think trout like instantly. And I know that's not the case. I mean, I know there's like warm water for like bass, sunfish. There's, you know, salt water. There's bonefish pretty much any type of fish can be caught on a fly but those three flies that you mentioned are they pretty much universal and will work in any circumstance did he not just say that any creek in the world will have a midge will have a a mayfly did i miss that was i the only one that heard that oh no you heard it but no no but 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 um donovan has a good has a good it's a good question. So any freshwater stream has that. So any trout water, any trout stream, um, you know, any freshwater creek has that. Um, but yes, you are totally right. Everybody, when you hear about fly fishing, everybody thinks about trout fishing. Um, I have learned over the years that you can literally catch any fish that swims on a fly rod, um, but your techniques change the size of your fly rod changes sometimes the fly line changes so you know traditionally when you're when you're fishing you're fly fishing for trout you're using a line that floats well they also make intermediate sinking lines that sink at one and a half inches per second and then they make deep sinking lines that that sink at three inches per second down to 15 inches per second so uh that's where your head starts to spin a little bit but um yeah, so what I mentioned, those 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 three major, you know, bugs or flies that I mentioned, those are specifically for trout. Um and then, you know, we should probably do a second podcast on warm water and stuff like that because that's a whole nother situation. Y'all can't see my face, but I am just 
deer in the headlights, mouth gaping open, scratching my head. Because uh, everything you said, I understood it was words. And I can imagine these um, flies. But at the same time, it, it's really hard. I I wish that I had a visual. Like I, I now I'm going to go into my uh, local fly shop, wherever that is. Because I, I, I do want to see these. Because um, the, the zebra yeah. midge. Yes. Um, I'm just imagining this uh, mosquito looking thing with no sucker. But also having like a mohawk that is black and white. And I think that looks really cool. And also very scary. <laughs> yeah. The zebra midge itself doesn't look anything <laughs> like what you just described. It, it, what? Look, what has- the midge. The midge itself, the adult, does kind of look like what you just described. But the zebra midge, which is the pupa stage of it, is literally black thread on a hook with silver wire. So it looks like black and white. It's not that exciting. Mine is yeah, well, clear. I'm going to literally, ha- when we're done with this 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 podcast, I'm going to tie a midge that just, that is going to be the description of what you just said. If they bu- if somebody buys it, can I have like partial credit? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Oh, Awesome. I will name it the fried mohawk. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. The fried mohawk. I just, I think in <laughs> pictures and I just meshed those two things together. You did, you did a great job. Your imagination for a mid twenties person is great. That sounded like it was meant to be <laughs> sarcastic, but I'm going to take it as a compliment. Cause I think that's probably what you meant it as. So, so with a with a pretty basic investment, you can get started. How does that translate as far as like, I know you said it makes it more accessible. And I guess what I'm getting at is you mentioned earlier, the younger demographics and women were starting to like your clientele yep. was starting to grow in those areas. How do you think the industry as a whole is starting to, I guess you could say target or push into that, that age group or that, um, that bracket? I mean, that's really what they're doing is they're making product that's quality that is affordable right so like one of the coolest parts about the fly fishing industry is the fact that it is so small and a significant portion of it is u.s made um you know the leading fly rod companies are all u.s made fly rod companies and so where you think that like because it's a u.s made fly rod it's going to be a thousand dollars you know because you can't build something like that in the U.S. for anything less than that. Well, now what a lot of companies are doing is they're getting into that mid-price range. So where a premium rod uh, is, you know, a thousand dollars, you know, just for the fly rod, you know, they're now making rods that are, you know, three, four, five hundred dollars that are U.S. made, um, and then each one of those companies has an outsourced rod that is in the you know 100 to 200 dollar range um and so i think what's really happening is that they're realizing that to get in and and about six years ago cabela's opened up you know 25 minutes from our fly shop and it was like oh my god what are you gonna do um and we kind of had a pretty good spin on it we said you know what that that cabela's is going to introduce people to fly fishing that we wouldn't otherwise be able to uh, you know, reach. And so they're going to start their fly fishing career at Cabela's and then evolve to a smaller retail store. Um, and so, 
you know, the fact that there is Cabela's and there's Bass Pro and there's Temple Fork Fly Rods, which, you know, their premium rod is 350 bucks or whatever. Um, might, that might not be true, so don't quote me on that. But there's companies out there that, that are literally making rods to make sure that no matter what your income is, you can afford a fly rod. And I think that's one of the biggest things that is bringing that demographic in uh, to do that. Um, and these rod companies know that. And so they're trying to get some of the bigger names in the fly, the fly fishing community to, you know, join their, you know, parade or their, you know, whatever you want to call it to make sure that the smaller generation that looks up to those people that are doing that realize that it's a quality product um, because they've got bigger. It's just like NASCAR in a way, you know what I mean? Like everybody wants, you know, M&Ms because of, you know, whatever, I don't know, but, um, you know, it's the same type of deal. But I think, I think one of the biggest things is without me ranting and raving too much about it is the fact that companies realize that the price point needs to be lower to get people into it. Because, you know, one of the things that TCO does really well, um, is when somebody comes in the fly shop to buy fly tying material or a pack of hooks, you know, we treat them the same way as the guy coming in to buy a thousand dollar reel and a five or a thousand dollar rod and a five hundred dollar reel. A customer is a customer. We want to get you addicted to every level of it. So the the concept is that you breed or you welcome into the company or you know that shop. You welcome in that customer at any level at which they want to purchase. So you treat customers the same way for a ten dollar sale or a twenty or a a fifteen hundred dollar sale. Um, and that's how you're going to bring those people in is, is, is making sure that they feel comfortable, you know, doing that. And so we like to make sure that it doesn't matter what you're buying. You know, if you're a 15 year old kid, that's just getting into it and you're coming in to buy a couple of flies, we're going to get you jazzed up because you may have a Cabela's rod that you bought or your dad bought you for Christmas, but you heard about this cool fly shop that has like a crazy selection of flies. And so you're going to buy flies from us. And then three years later, you're going to buy a fly rod. You know what I mean? So you're kind of breeding these customers that become loyal to your shop um, and and getting them into the sport is what it's all about. So I literally just blacked out, so I have no idea what I just said. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, um, bringing in like the younger demographic and like women especially, it, it comes as much with the shop making them feel welcome as it does the accessibility of the gear. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I mean, when you think about – like you said earlier, uh, you know, that stigma of, you know, you have to have money, you have to wear tweed jackets, you know, if you're anybody but that, you're a minority in your mind to this sport. And so if you're not welcomed into the sport by the people that, you know, are behind the counter of a fly shop or behind the counter of Cabela's, you might not get into it, you know, and that's one of the best parts about me being a guide, um, especially you know, in, in Pennsylvania uh, with the demographic changes that we have and the fact that I have so many different levels of clients. I mean, I've, I'm on day seven right now straight. Um, and I've literally had people from 12 years old to 79 years old. So it's amazing, you know, and like, I just had, um, I had a, a father and a daughter and the daughter was 42 years old, you know? And so like they came out um, and then the very next day I had a father and a daughter and the daughter was 12. And then the next day I had 
uh, a couple, or they they were just friends, 79 and 61. So I literally had women from 12 years old to 61 years old in three days. Um, and, and that's, that's so cool because, you know, I treated each one of them like it was their day, right? Like they were my best friend for the day. Um, and they're all hooked. And, and that's the difference. The difference is making sure that you're a male, you're a female, you're 12 or you're 70 or 80. You all get treated the same when you walk into the shop or you be got, or, you, or you're being guided by any, by a guide. That's what keeps you in it. So it, it has nothing to do with, in my mind, it really has nothing to do with how much the gear is, the, the gear cost that you have. It has to do with how you're welcomed into this sport that people are, are pretty intimidated by. Okay. I'm going to do one more question and then we'll get into, we'll get you to tell us a fun story from your guiding days, but all right, let's say Fry. Yay. I love being the butt of a joke. Let's say Fry walks into your fly shop and she says, Jake, I have 500 bucks outfit me and then take me on a guided trip. What do you give her? And what is, I guess you could say, how does the guided trip work? So what I give her is an Orvis Clearwater rod and reel. Uh, I give her an Orvis Clearwater uh, set of boots and waders, which they make in women's. That's another awesome part about the fly fishing community now or the, the manufacturers is now they're making a lot of women's specific stuff. So there's always a women's, you know, just like in Fry, you were mm-hmm. talking about climbing earlier. Um, just like in climbing or any outdoor stuff, there's the women's side and there's the men's side. Well, for years there was just the men's side and like, well, there's something that might fit a woman. Now it's like, there's a woman, a woman's section in every single catalog from all these companies. So, um, I would set you up with that stuff. Uh, I would probably get you, um, a, a few packs of leaders, um, a few packs of tippet, uh, or a few spools of tippet and probably a half dozen flies and say, here you go. If you wanted to just get totally outfitted for 500 bucks, you could do that with quality product that you're going to grow into. What I love to explain to people when they walk in, they're like, I want the cheapest thing possible because I might not like it. I'm like, well, if you buy the cheapest thing possible and you like it, then you have to upgrade pretty quickly after that. Where if you buy something that, you know, you – might not stay into it, but you might at the same time. Um, it's something you can grow into, you know, it's something that, you know, even if you love it so much that it becomes your lifestyle like me or your, you know, that it's what I do, you know, that fly rod that you buy originally can become your backup and can be in the back of your car at all times. So I try to tell people like, you know, you, you shouldn't buy the cheapest thing possible just because that's what you think you need because you don't know if you like it. You should buy something that you can grow into um, that is quality because quality product oftentimes is a difference between liking it or not liking it. If I give you a pair of $50 waders and they leak the second day you're out and it's the water temps 55 degrees and you lose feeling in your toes, well, how much of an enjoyable experience is that? Or if I get you a raincoat that costs 60 bucks and you go outside and it's a downpour and you get totally saturated and you're freezing versus you know the more expensive raincoat, it's like the gear that you have oftentimes, no, is it going to make you a better fisherman? Absolutely not. No, but it will make it a more enjoyable and comfortable experience. So, so Donovan, I would say that Fry is getting an Orvis clear lot, clear water rod and reel, a pair of Orvis clear water boots and waders, both in the women's sizing. 
and then she's getting a small fly box with a dozen flies um, for the general area. And Donovan gets gets nothing. No, I get nothing. He's got his Cabela's outfit. Yeah, so that... I've got my Cabela's and some, and some flip flops. Terrible. People ask me all the time why I like guiding, why I like fishing for smallmouth bass, and why I like guiding for it. My number one response board is board shorts, shorts and, and flip flops. <laughs> wow. What does a guided trip look like? Like, give me the uh, the typical day of a, of a guided trip. How does it work? What do we do? Yeah, right on. So, um, depending on where you're staying, most of the time we meet uh, at the fly shop. Uh, there's a resort right down the street from the fly shop that a lot of people stay at. Um, and if that's the case, I will meet you at the main lobby of that that resort. But what you get once you book a trip is you get an email from me with a Word document. Like it's called a pre-trip packet. Um, it's got all of the list of stuff that you need, you know, to bring for the day. Uh, it also has you know, where we're going to meet, my cell phone, um, you know, a couple other information, you know, information about the day, um, my cell phone, my truck, you know, make model and year, uh, my email, all that stuff. Um, and then it also asks you if you do a full day trip, um, uh, uh, my guide service supplies lunches, which most do, but we give you the option to choose what you want. Uh, you know, ham, turkey, roast beef, wrap, roll, gluten-free roll, uh, working on a vegetarian uh, option as well. Um, you get to choose, you know, what kind of chips you want. If you want chips, pretzels, or popcorn, you get to choose apple, orange, or watermelon. So you get your list of, of food that you get to pick from, and then uh, all of our guides make you. Uh, we make our lunches, um, and so you basically get a super badass boxed lunch um, that's in a waterproof Tupperware. Because fry, I'm trying to get rid of uh, all of the waste, so I no longer use you know, pa um, paper bags and stuff like that. So if I could get clients to be on board with me using beeswax wraps for their sandwiches, I'd be totally into it. But like, and they look at me funny when like it opens up and there's like mustard on it from like four well, trips I ago and you can't wash that. it, but so I'm working on it. <laughs> um, but, uh, so that's, so you get that type of stuff. Um, you choose all that. Uh, I meet you at 8 a.m. Uh, we drive to wherever we're going to go. Sometimes it's a two-minute drive. Sometimes it's a 25-minute drive. Um, we gear up. Uh, if you've never fly fished before, we'll do like an hour of you know casting lessons, and I'll show you the knots that I'm tying, how to put a rod together, You know, basically starting from scratch. Uh, and then you get to listen to me heckle you all day for screwing up or doing things right. Um, you know, like I said before, I'm super sarcastic, so, uh, it, it's, it's, it's super fun, you know, and, and we're all of the guides that I have are addicted to it. So, um, we, we absolutely love it. So, you know, it's, it's a fishing experience for sure, but then it becomes a, a bonding experience. You know, you, I, I can't tell you how many clients that, that I have and a lot of my, my guides have that have become fishing buddies or, you know, send them Christmas cards in the winter, you know, around Christmas and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's a great experience. So we meet you, we fish with you, we give you lunch, we give you water, we give you Gatorade. You know, if you're a beer drinker, we'll have probably a couple of different types of beers in our cooler. Uh, at lunchtime, you can have a beer too. Um, and, uh, if, if we catch fish, we net them and take pictures of them for you. Uh, if we don't catch fish, there's always a picture of you fishing or scenery shots. So, um, one thing that I love to do, uh, and that I preached to all my, all my guides is that, 
you know, a, a follow-up email or text message. Obviously, email was great five years ago. Text messages become like the most recent email. Um, you know, and so you send pictures to them and say thanks a lot for you know showing up or whatever. And, oh, and uh, you just give the whole experience. And then that's the end of it. That, well, we don't we don't slow down. No, awesome. Not at all. All right. So now you get the chance to regale us with a story. What is something embarrassing, humbling? just downright cool that you've had happen to you outside in general. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you two stories. So one of them is, is, uh, and I can't, I don't remember the client's name, so it doesn't matter, but you know, in Alaska, you're pretty far quote unquote North, right? So you're in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and my, my first year that I guided, I was sitting in the Pacific ocean on uh, the boat. Uh, trolling for salmon and one of my clients looks at me and says so jake how high above sea level are we <laughs> and i looked at him and a wave came by and we came to the top of the wave and i said about six feet and he looks at me and he goes what do you mean and i said dude we're sitting in the middle of the pacific ocean we're at sea level like we are literally in the quote-unquote sea and he looks at me and he goes huh Probably should have thought about that one before I asked that question. I I would say that's something I would ask. <laughs> wow! But it no no it's not something I'd ask. Yeah, so so that that's one of my wow. favorite questions I've ever been asked. Um, one of the coolest stories I have uh, about Alaska was like true like survival situation like everything went wrong but we we were semi prepared for it. Um, so whenever I guided uh, in Alaska. Um, I always carried two granola bars and a bottle of water, or it was the other way around. It might have been two bottles of water and a granola bar. I used to always carry them every time we flew out in float planes, you know, just because I was superstitious about crashing and, you know, heaven forbid we crashed and I actually survived. Like, I'd have water and a granola bar. Um, Instead of having to, like, eat you're the right, other passengers. Right. And so so I had this whole, uh, this whole religious thing going on for two years. Well, we decided – me and my buddy Jesse, who was my roommate and the other guide, uh, his cousin came into town, and we were going to show he was going off to Iraq or something. He was a military brat, so we wanted to show him the full Alaskan experience. So we chartered, we chartered a float plane. Uh, we flew out to one of our favorite trout streams that was on the other side of the island. It was about a forty-five minute plane ride, you know, in a in basically in a go kart with wings. Um, we camped for a night and we fished for a day and a half. Um, and it was, it was awesome. Saw a couple bears, you know, had a great time, you know, drank some beer, you know, ate, ate a bunch of food. Um, the interesting part about it is that in Sitka, because it is somewhat, you know, uh, developed, it actually has a subway and a McDonald's. And so I told my buddy, Jesse, I was doing a half day guided trip that day. And I said, Hey dude, like, I'm totally down for this idea. Um, you get the food and let me know, you know, what time we're taking off and I'll make sure I'm there. So Jesse gets the food and everything, and he packs everything up. I just show up with all my gear on, like jump in the plane and go. We get done fishing all day, and uh, I said, Jesse, what's for what's for dinner? You know, I just made this beautiful fire, and he pulls out this little yellow wrapper and throws it at me, and it's a McDonald's double cheeseburger. <laughs> and I'm like, seriously? We're in the middle of the wilderness, and you've got McDonald's double cheeseburgers for dinner. And he's like, well, you told me to get to food. And I was like, all right, whatever. So 
We ate McDonald's double cheeseburgers. Uh, and we went to bed, drank a little bit, went to bed, woke up the next day and fished for the majority of the day, broke down camp. Plane was supposed to come pick us up. Uh, and it had to be back on the tarmac because it was on the tarmac of Alaskan Airlines. It had to be back on the tarmac by 7. Um, and 7 o'clock rolled around, no plane. And we're like, uh, now what? So we realized the plane's not coming. Um, so we have my granola bars and my water. And that's literally all we have to eat. And so we're like, well, I guess we'll go reset up camp and see what happens. And so um, uh, um, I'm thinking about the fact that we drank a bottle of water and we just ate my Cliff Bar and my, I I don't know, I had this college-like intuition. And I was like, holy crap, there's a bunch of salmon in this creek. Let's go <laughs> We're going to eat them. And so we go down and we catch a couple of salmon. I have a three-inch Gerber multi-tool, uh, and uh, I take the two pink salmon, which are really gross to eat, by the way, But so we went out and tried to catch the fresh ones possible. I start filleting them, and I hear this big thud while I'm filleting them. Now, there's a palisading wall in front of me and a river behind me and a very small, narrow path. So I hear this thud, and I'm like, look up, nothing. Just keep filleting it. I got salmon blood on my hands. Um... And then I hear a thud, 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 huff. And I turn around and I look to my right, and there's about a three-year-old coastal brown bear 15 feet from me looking at me. And I'm like, well, I got two dead salmon, a three-inch blade on my knife, and I am screwed. (laughs) And they teach you that you're not supposed to give them your food. So I'm literally having a standoff with this bear. And I'm screaming, hey, bear, get out of here, bear. And he's, he's not not moving he wants the salmon so my buddy jesse's about 150 yards back at camp and he hears me screaming it and meanwhile i do have a 44 revolver unfortunately it's back at camp so i literally have this three inch knife and uh i'm screaming and i'm i'm losing my mind at this point i'm like this is this is bad so in the corner of my eye i see my buddy jesse come running down from camp like wyatt earp with a 4570 lever action rifle and my 44 in his hand full sprint like guns loaded ready to rock and i was like oh here we go so he shows up we scare the bear off and uh end up cooking one of the salmon and uh taking the other salmon and throwing it in the estuary and uh uh leaving it leaving it set dug up the fire threw it in the river because we didn't want the the bears coming back whatever Next day, we're like, okay, now what? Because we survived the bear, semi-bear attack. We got all that figured out. Now what? Well, there was an old cannery uh, about a mile down the bank, and we saw two Boston whalers there, and we're like, huh, somebody's got to live there. So I this time I took my gun, and I hiked the shoreline, and it was such a cool thing. So it was an old cannery. So there was a three-story hotel. Uh, there was an old bar. There was an old... It was just like you walked down a western town, you know, like back in the, the I don't know, whatever it was, John Wayne era. Um, it was just like that. I get there, and there's like these beware of dog signs everywhere. And I'm like, oh, God, now what? Like, here we go. I'm just going to go back and tell them that there was nobody there. And I was like, no, nah, I, I got a revolver. I was like, I almost had to shoot a bear yesterday. Hopefully, I don't have to shoot a dog today. So I, I get all the way down to the end with no signs of life, and there's one more house, and I knock on the door. 
And this little old lady comes walking to the door. She opens it up, and I was like, you don't probably have this happen at all. She's like, me and my husband have owned this place for 15 years, and I've never had a single person knock on my door. And I said, well, and I explained the situation, and she gave me a her satellite phone, and we called the, the airstrip, and they said that the plane left, and they'd be there in 20 minutes or so. And uh, she's like, do you want any coffee or any of that stuff? And I was like, honestly, we would love all of that. So she's like, do you want to ride back? And I was like, sure. So here she puts me on a Boston Whaler. I'm sitting on the bow of the Boston Whaler. And it's like Jesus Christ is coming down the river in this Boston Whaler when my two buddies saw me. And they were ecstatic. Um, and so the entire experience, we got on the planes, went back, um, and uh, found out that the other side of the island, which, you know, we were only a 30-minute plane ride, uh, was totally socked in with, with fog and, and all that stuff. And so the planes, the little planes couldn't get off because, oh, by the way, float planes have worse navigation systems <laughs> than our iPhones do. So if you can't see it, you can't navigate it. Uh, and so that was my full survival Alaskan story that took place in a matter of 48 hours. That story would have only been funnier if your friend had come running and instead of guns he had double cheeseburgers that i would agree with that but you know we dominated those double cheeseburgers so see when during that story all i could think about is there are so many other things you could yell at a bear because bears don't speak english no but they like they don't like well, loud I know noises that, but you could yell like i'm also a bear that joke is fry fry <laughs> i read it somewhere <laughs> Actually, I was told it by my boyfriend. It was a great joke. It killed at, bar at parties. I know. Fry. That's all I got. I'm not even going to. Sorry. <laughs> uh, the man almost died, and I'm you're critiquing what he yelled at the for the, the next time. We did used to talk to him. Like, when we would when we would hike a lot, you know, we would sometimes we'd hike five miles in, and we'd be like, hey, Yogi, what's up, buddy? You know, you just got to keep talking to them, let them know. Because the last thing you want to do is spook one of those things because they're instantaneously going to come jumping at you. And, uh, you know, when you put 800 pounds of pure fury flying at your face, life oh, ends pretty I, quickly. I can imagine. Well, no, never mind. Let's not imagine that. Yeah, so, don't do that. One of the things that we like to do is give a suggestion to our listeners uh, about gear or a podcast or something that they need to look into Rye. what right i just did that before the story <laughs> no i'm just kidding keep going <laughs> i'm done <laughs> no come on um, i'm just kidding but to give a suggestion about something that our listeners should take a look into uh what do you think you our listeners need to look into for fly fishing or um something that you're interested in that is the most open-ended question ever. You know, so I think one of the biggest things that, that, that fly fishermen, or if you're looking about getting into fly fishing, is, um, you know, uh, books are fantastic. Orbis makes a killer book um, that I, I don't remember the name of it, but if you just Google, like, beginner fly fishing in Orbis, it comes up. Um, it, it is probably the best book that's ever been written about, you know, fly fishing and, like, getting into the sport and stuff like that. So um, I want to say it's literally Orvis Fly Fishing 101 or something like that. I don't know the name of the book, but it is the best book that exists in that sense. And so talking about suggestions of how to get into it and how to really get your, you know, base knowledge down. 
Uh, reading a book is a great deal. YouTube is awesome, but one thing I will say is, is I have a a um, kind of a love hate relationship. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, for YouTube for sure. Like I, I also kind of use it as as uh, as a bad thing. Um, what's it called when you have? Well, whatever. Um, so I use YouTube as as a negative thing in a lot of ways because you get these quote unquote like YouTube experts, right? Guys that or girls that spend their entire time um, on YouTube and think they can talk the talk, but they definitely cannot walk the walk. So YouTube is great for basic knowledge, but the best way to learn how to fly fish is to get on the water and just do it. Um, you know, I, I got a uh, I got a book contract and. And Donovan knows that that's pretty much like a unicorn walking through the door. Um, Indeed. That because of the knowledge that I had and when I explained it to one of the people at the editing company um, was all of my information from my time spent on the water. And so that was like – that was kind of solidifying for me that like time spent fishing is the most valuable thing that you could possibly do um, in that sense. So – uh, it's pretty, pretty much that. Like, get a book, get one book, and call it a day, and then go fishing. So, um, fry for you. Getting females in the sport is probably one of the coolest things that you know is going on. And I'll be honest with you, fly fishing for women is probably one of the fastest growing portions of the sport. So they have this really cool thing called fifty fifty on the water. Um, and it's kind of like a social media plug, um, to show the world of fly fishing. That's always been male dominant that, um, you know, it can be, you know, you can have very, very strong female role models and, and guides. And there's some girls that exist. One of my really good friends in the industry, um, Alice Olsley, she owns her own outfitter in Montana. Um, and she's a female and probably one of the highest male driven, uh, guide, you know, environments in the world and she's dominating. And so like you get super strong women that do it and it's awesome. And she is, she's one of the coolest girls I've ever met. So, um, and she's a guide, you know, she's been doing it forever and now she owns her own, she owns her own outfitter. So, um, you know, women in the sport are definitely a huge, uh, plus and I think are needed for sure. So stellar. I, you gave us uh, a lot of things to look into. So, um, definitely excited to get that Orvis book um do some reading not check out so much youtube um but also the 50 uh for 50 was that the 50 50 on the 50, water 50 on the water um no that's awesome resources for us to get into well yeah well, yeah <laughs> i think uh wow we've been at this for a minute um probably time to wrap it up which just means we're gonna have to drag you back on here again so i'm in Jake. you let me know i will do it so yeah i guess with that we are signing off fry definitely I mean, our friends out there stay wild um but also take a chance to check us out on instagram and facebook teachers in the wild podcast and definitely go over and give jake a like at relentless fly fishing relentless fly fishing um and give them a like follow get some more information stay wild my friends Stay tuned. Same bat time, same bat channel.